So before we jump into it, how are you? How are you doing? Uh, you know, it's 2022, uh, but we're getting through these, these tough times. Well, you know, I have to say that I'm, COVID was very good to me. Okay. I'm sad that people died and I'm sad that people got sick. And I got COVID as well very early on. Oh, wow. But I got to say that it really, it really kind of changed my life in a positive way. Wow. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm pretty fortunate. When COVID first hit, I, I got sick. It was very mild, but I didn't know it was mild. So when I first got sick, I panicked and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to die sure. because I'm every, like I am the, the market of people that die from COVID. I'm overweight. I'm older. You know, my lungs aren't super healthy. So I thought this is it. I'm going to die. Wow. And when I didn't, I realized how much stuff I still wanted to accomplish and it lit a fire under me because I realized I could die at any minute. So it made me step up my game. Uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. I've heard, I've heard that so much. Um, I mean, I had uh, two elderly relatives pass away, not, not because of COVID, but sorry. Because of, uh, yeah. It's uh, one because of a stroke and one because of, um, it was something to do with his bowels. Uh, but Basically, the, the the news. He was watching the news constantly. He was so worried about going out out of his house yes. because of COVID. So, I stopped watching the news early on. Sure, sure, yeah. So I I can kind of relate what what, what you're saying for sure. But I'm so glad you're, you're over that now, and you're you're really good health. I'm in great health. Good stuff. I'm in great health. I'm healthy. I'm happy. I sleep well. Yeah. I can't complain. I've got so much going on, which is great. No complaints. Of course. <laughs> so let's take you back. I mean, how did you become involved in hip hop? And was you a fan of hip hop um, before you became involved? I am. Yeah, I, I started listening to rap music um, in 1980. Most of the people watching this weren't born yet. Sure. Um, but I started listening. Right. You included. Exactly. I started listening to um, hip hop music really early. And that got me involved in the culture you know, um, break dancing, which is called b-boying, graffiti. I just, I, I love the whole culture of hip hop. Sure. And I didn't start working in the music industry immediately. Um, I waited 12 years actually wow. before getting involved in the music business. And I started by um, setting up a not-for-profit organization called Rap Coalition, which still exists today. It pulls artists out of bad deals and it helps educate artists on how the music business operates. Of course, of course. I've read, I've read so much, you know, about, about the work you've done with the Rock Coalition and uh, so many artists that you've helped and uh, record deals that you've, 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 you've helped to, to... Yes, to negotiate. Of course, of course. I mean... Yeah, that was, that was always... Um, I'm sorry, Andy. That was always one of my frustrations was that the artists kind of lead the music industry, but they're the last to get paid and they always make the least amount of money. So I've been very fortunate that I've gotten to negotiate some artists into some amazing deals where they have ownership and they do get the lion's share of the money. And I think that's important. It certainly is because like you say, that they're, they're the main they're the main characters in, in the movie, aren't they really? Yes, they really are. Of course. I mean what was your motivation behind helping artists? It was the fact that I was such a fan and I just felt like as a fan, the people that I admire so much should have more ownership and control. Sure. 
And, you know, I read so many stories in magazines. It was magazines back then. There was no internet. Mm -hmm. So I read so many stories in magazines about artists being taken advantage of. And I didn't understand why no one stepped up to help them. Um, I understand it now. It's because there's no money in altruism. But back then I thought, well, if nobody else is going to step up, why not me? For sure. And I did. Yes, you did. And in a big way, in a big, in way. a big way. Yeah. And that was 30 years ago. Nothing's changed. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, there's so, there's so many arts I can, I can speak of. Um, I spoke with uh, Razkaz not too long ago. And love him. Yeah. Angel of hip hop. And, you know, your story is so amazing. I mean, can you, can you tell us the story of how you first met Eminem? Sure. Um, he was, he was rapping outside of a hotel. I was there um, in Detroit to speak on a panel inside of the Athenium Hotel. And I had a rapper with me. I came from Chicago at that time. We drove and I had a rapper with me called Rhymefest. Rhymefest is who wrote Jesus Walks for Kanye, wow. just to give you some, some, um, and this is before that, but just to give you some, you know, point of reference. So when we got to the Athenium Hotel, um, Rhymefest stayed outside to rap. I went inside, spoke on a panel, And by the time I got out, like hours had passed and we hadn't eaten yet and I was starving. So I really just wanted to go to Denny's. So I hopped in the car and Rhymefest left the cipher, hopped in the car. He handed me Eminem's demo and said, "Um, you should listen to this. He can really rap. And I, I wasn't focused on music. I just really wanted to go to Denny's, to be honest. I wanted to get something to eat. Yeah. And you know how when you're driving and the person in the passenger seat is staring at you, like he did the full turn to look at me. Wow. And I, I, I felt his eyes burning <laughs> through my head. And I'm like, what? And he said, you know, that's really messed up. Like, you know how hard it is being white in the music industry and, you're not even listening to his demo. Like that's really fucked up. And I agreed. I popped it in and it was amazing. I made a U-turn, went back to the hotel, told him get in. And we all drove to Denny's together. And I sat there for hours just, you know, talking to him in Rhymefest, explaining what publishing is and how to get a record deal, just sharing as much knowledge as I had at the time with both of them so that they, you know, be a little bit prepared for the music industry. And then once I got back to New York, I had just um, done the deal for Twista at Atlantic Records, and I had just helped Do or Die put out their music independently. So I had the attention of all of the record labels at that point in time. So I shopped Eminem's demo and nobody wanted to sign a white rapper. They admitted that he was talented, but there was a fear that a white rapper wouldn't sell back in, this is 96, 97, somewhere in there. There was still the fear that a white rapper wouldn't wouldn't do well. So I ended up doing an event called um, rap Olympics, which was a um, a battle, for lack of a better explanation, but it was teams battling instead of one-on-one artists battling. And Eminem was part of my team. And um, although although my team didn't win, um, Jay Smooth's team won. Mm-hmm. Um, Project Blow, they're amazing. Wow. Um, 
my team was able to go on to the wake up show, which is Sway and Tech. And Dr. Dre heard him rapping on the wake up show and went up to the station to see who this, you know, amazing lyricist was. And it was Eminem. For sure, for sure. I mean, what did what did you what did you see in him that nobody didn't up until that point? Um, his lyrical ability. He had the ability to rap um, and rhyme three and four syllables. Sure. And that was just amazing. You know, most rappers could, could, could do one or two, but he was rhyming, you know, four, three and four syllables at a time. And wow. and the lyrics made sense. For sure. For sure. Wow. That's, that's something that's something else. I mean, even back then, like you say, 1996. I mean, what, what did you... Yeah. I spoke with uh, Swifty McVeigh. You just uh, touched on it uh, just a second ago. I spoke with Swifty McVeigh and he... He said back in them days, he struggled with a lot of hate from from different rappers from the crowd when he was doing battles, uh, at like the, yeah. the rap shop back in uh, De- uh, Detroit, uh, because of, of his skin color. I mean, what did you get that from the industry when you first tried to shop in? The Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it was very, it was very challenging. I mean, back then, um, white rappers that had succeeded were really MC Search and Vanilla Ice and no, Vanilla right. Ice was not well respected. Search was re- re- well respected, mm-hmm. but Vanilla Ice wasn't. And back at that time, Millie Vanilli had just been stripped of their, um, they were lip syncing to their lyrics and they had just been stripped of the Grammys. So there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of attack on things that weren't considered authentic. And because Eminem was white and Vanilla Ice was white and Vanilla Ice wasn't seen as authentic, Mm -hmm. it made it very uncomfortable for labels to want to do a deal. Okay. Okay. Fortunately, times change. Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. I mean, how did Eminem react to the to the kind of hate that he, he got? Did he confide in you with with his feelings towards that? No, he didn't. He didn't. He was kind of like me. Like, it just kind of rolls off your back. Like, when you're white in an all-black music industry, you realize what it is, and you realize that you're different and that you stand out. Yeah. And... For, for me, I can't speak for Eminem, but for me, I've got a master's degree in African-American studies, and I understand the 500 years of oppression that African-Americans endured in order to live in America. So for a handful of people, or even if it's a, more than a handful of people to hate on me, it's like, it, 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 I get it. It's like trying to undo 500 years of oppression single-handedly. It's not going to happen. With M, when he was battling, of course, people would point out that he was a white rapper, but his way of handling that was always to bring it to the forefront first. Like he would always point out that he was a white rapper before somebody else could step in and zing him with that. Of course. And that was pretty smart. Yeah. Kind of use it against him kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Uh huh. So you just touched on it just there, just then. You, you set up the '97 Rap Olympics, and M was on your team. Yes. Talk to me a bit, a bit about that event. Um, I mean, who, who did he battle? Um, 
otherwise an artist out of LA and this goes back um you're asking me to remember almost 30 years ago so I I can't remember as many details as you probably want but they are online and if you google Eminem Rap Olympics you can get a lot of details but the team was Project Blowed and I believe the rapper that he ended up battling to lose the battle was an, was a rapper called otherwise otherwise yes yes yep. one of the one of the interesting i'm sorry to cut you off sure. one of the interesting things about battling is there were there were no battle rappers that really made it into mainstream music except for eminem like if you look at um supernatural or craig g or juice or anybody from project blowed they never really made it mainstream because back then rappers were either seen as battle rappers mm -hmm. or they were seen as entertainers and m was really the first one to break through that mold and be you know be signed in order to make songs and become a superstar i'm with you i'm with you um yeah i mean it's very nice to explain that because a lot of people like I say a lot of people May, may, may not know that Eminem did come from a, 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 like a, battle. a battle background. Exactly. Sure. sure. Um, yep. I know you said it's over 30 years ago, but um, the subject of otherwise has come up, uh, cropped up lately because of uh, everything be uh, between that's going on between Kanye, uh, sorry, uh, the game and uh, Dr. Dre, what he's come out and said. I spoke to uh, B-Fly, who's game's uh, sister, and she said she brought up that Eminem actually lost to uh the rapper otherwise in the 97 rap olympics yes how did eminem react to that battle um i don't really remember it was so long ago sure. um i know that he felt like he had a lot on the line and that's probably a question you would have to ask him because okay. only he was in his head at the time yeah. but he was homeless when he was at rap olympics mm -hmm. and he had just become homeless so when he was returning to Detroit, he would have nothing. And he was hoping to win. One of the prizes was, I think it was $500 and a Rolex. And um, he was hoping to sell the Rolex in order to find a place to live. So there was a lot on the line. So I'm guessing, and again, I wasn't in his head, but I'm guessing that when he lost, he really felt like, oh my God, now what am I going to do? So when Dre pulled up and offered him a record deal, he was thrilled because it gave him hope and it gave him a place to live. Uh -huh. I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, I think he, he he came out and talked about that with the interview with Mike Tyson. Uh, he said that you played for his plane ticket. Yes. Wow. Wow. It's yep. such an, an amazing, okay. of course, of course. Such and then after, I'm, I'm sorry, after he got signed, um, they kept him in LA for a couple of weeks and I stayed an additional few days just to make sure he was okay. They had him like squirreled away in a hotel room, you know, writing to beats. And I was a little nervous to just leave and leave him there, you know, with nobody. So I stayed an extra couple of days in my hotel just to make sure that he was okay. And he was more than fine. Was this in, in LA, did you say? Yes. Wow. Okay. Okay. So how long? And I lived in New York at the time. All right. I'm with you. I'm with you. How long between the Rap Olympics and the deal with Dr. Dre? How did that came about? Um, 
well, Dre offered him the deal right, right there and then. So the deal was negotiated for the next few months. It, it takes a couple months to get the paperwork right. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. You really had a lot of back and forth. For sure. For sure. You really did look out for him back then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really cared. I what? still do. Of course, of course. It comes across, you know, it comes across in your work, you, you know, like you say, it's 30 odd years uh, and you're still doing it. You're still doing it for artists and, uh, you know, we salute you, you know, giving you flowers. Thank it's you. Awesome. It's awesome. But, you know, from the Rap Olympics, uh, you obviously signs with uh, Dr. Dre. Uh, back now, fast forward back into uh, 2022, he's doing the halftime show at the Super Bowl. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it really is. It really is. I mean, what What are your thoughts on the Super Bowl of the halftime, the halftime show? I thought it. I thought it was amazing. First of all, I thought it was amazing because he took a knee, like Colin Kaepernick. So it just shows me that he's still political and he still gives a shit, you know. And and that's amazing because he's at a level in life where he could not do any of that and be fine and still be loved. Cool. And the fact that he saw the need to do that, even though they were told not to do that, yeah. I think is amazing. Wow. Wow. I mean, do you think that the right artist was picked for, for that? Oh, artist? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, it, it meets their demographic. I think that there's a lot of young people that are starting to get into football Sure. But most of the fans are, you know, in their 30s and 40s. And that's exactly the demographic of, you know, Snoop and Dre and M and even 50 Cent. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, branching out with Eminem's crew, you got proof who I, I know he was very close to. Yes. Loved him. Yeah. Yeah. What, what can you tell us about proof? He was such an amazing rapper, but more than anything, he was just so entertaining. He was very lovable. He was very open-minded. Um, he was going down the independent route. You know, remember, he was Eminem's best friend. So if he had gone to Eminem and said, put me on, M absolutely would have. But he was the type of guy that just really wanted to build his own lane and create his own destiny. And that's what he was doing when he was killed. He mm -hmm. was, um, he was, he had just gotten a distribution deal with an independent distributor out of Florida, I believe it was. And he had just reached out to me for insight in order to put out his first release when, when he passed away. And that was devastating. You know, he was so well loved that when he was murdered, I found it so hard to believe that there would be somebody out there that didn't appreciate him because he was just such a great guy. He was such a great human being. Of course, of course. I mean, I, like I said, I spoke to uh, Swifty McVeigh. He, he he relates what you've just said. Basically, uh, you know, he was, was a great guy. He was cracking jokes, you know, but he was hardworking and put D12 at the forefront. You know, he was, yes. he was delivering posters here, there and everywhere, trying to promote D12 in the early days. Yes. Such a such a great um, such a great artist, such a loss for hip hop, and such a great human being. You know, sure. there haven't been a lot of you know we 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 suffer a lot of death in hip hop, yeah. and I've become a little bit numb to it. There aren't a lot of rappers that have died where I've really broken down and cried, and pretty much he and Tupac and Pimp C were the ones that really like I really felt. 
Sure. Because they were just all three just great human beings. Of course, of course. I mean, it's, it's great that you mentioned Tupac. I mean, is another legend that you've worked with. Yeah. How did you first come into in, to contact with Tupac, and what did you your first first feelings? I mean, um, when I first met him, um, my original feelings with him were that he was very loud and obnoxious. So when he would come to New York. You know, we'd all be standing in the VIP line to get into a club and he'd be so loud and so obnoxious that I would get out of line and go back to the to the back of the line if he was near me, because I just didn't want to be near the drama. I, I don't like drama. I don't like you know, I just don't I don't like that shit. You know, I'm very to myself. I'm very quiet. I go everywhere alone. So I don't want to be in a circus. I don't appreciate that and I don't enjoy it. And that's what he had around him at all times. He was just, you know, he was always the really uh, gregarious guy. He would pull in people that he knew and just build a giant circle of people that would all be having fun. And um, when he was incarcerated, that's when he reached out to me. I had, um, I had helped him. Uh, I didn't help him. I, I, he couldn't help himself at this point in time. So I reached out to some friends of mine in the fruit of Islam and asked them if they would secure him before he went to prison from after his sentence came in to when, after his verdict came in to when he was sentenced, he felt like somebody was trying to kill him. And I don't know if that was true or not, but I did have friends that could help. So I called on them and asked them to help. And he reached out to me, um, I didn't realize they were going to tell, tell him that I had arranged it mm-hmm. and it was just a favor. I didn't pay any money or anything. I just called in a favor and he wrote me a letter from prison, thanking me for doing that. And we wrote back and forth and, you know, that's how we became friendly. I, I befriended him when he was incarcerated. Of course. Of course. I mean, what can you tell us about that time? When he was in, it was in prison. Was it Denimora who was in prison? It was Denimora, yeah. They put him all the way um, as far north as you could in the state of um, of New York. He was up by the Canadian border. And um, they did that so that it would be hard for people to go visit him. Yeah, yeah, e- even for me, it was a six-hour drive. So in order to be at the prison at 8 o'clock in the morning, I had to leave my house at midnight and drive all night to get there. Wow. You know, they, they did not make it easy. Sure. And then Danamora um, at the time, I'm sure it still is, was the roughest prison. It's where the worst of the worst were incarcerated, the murderers, the, you know, just the really, it was just a really hard bid that you did at Danamora and they put him there, you know? Wow. Wow. So, uh, so, you know, for, for the trial that he went, he, he went to court with and, I got I stuck. I can't imagine what his mind was, where his mind was at at that point. It it I, I, it, it had to be difficult because remember he was famous at the time. Sure. When he went to to prison, he was. Uh, I'm not sure what the equivalent of it today would be, but he was famous. He was very well known. Mm-hmm. He had dropped mm-hmm. just dropped an album that went double platinum. Of course. You know, and back then, if you weren't there to promote your music it didn't go anywhere so the fact that it you know had success without him being able to promote it is just amazing sure 
for sure. I've, I've read somewhere, I don't know if it's true or not, you said, you actually sent him the books, uh, the, was it the Machiavelli book and uh, The Art yeah. of War, I think, was the what, one of them that you sent? I did. Wow. I sent him, um, I do this with all rappers that are incarcerated even today. Sure. Any, any rapper that um, goes to prison, I send them books because if they're going to just sit still in a cell, they might as well feed their minds and come out stronger and better than they went in. Right. That's kind of my philosophy. So um, yes, I, I did that for him. I did that for Pimp C. I did that for Capone from Capone and Noriega. I did that for um, almost everybody that was incarcerated back around that time. Wow. Keith Murray. Of course it keeps the mind occupied. and, and Absolutely. Course, course. And what I was doing was I was sending them my favorite books. Okay. So I still do that today. Like the books that have really impacted me. I read a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm a bookworm. I'm a geek. So I spend a lot of time um, reading. So I send the books that have really inspired me, hoping that it will inspire them behind the walls as well. Wow. And I think he, I think he kicked on from there when he got released uh, from I, I think I think maybe it inspired him, you think? I think so. I think so with uh, the Machiavelli album. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts when Tupac actually signed with Death Row from prison? I was very upset. Um, I was not a fan of Death Row. I was very familiar with Death Row. I had spent quite a bit of time, yeah. but I I lived in New York, so I saw the war that was coming between the East coast and the West coast. And I understand why he signed with death row, but I wasn't supportive of it. And although I did not negotiate his deal for him, Mm -hmm. I did send him countless letters, like explaining what he should ask for, what he should look out for. Sure. Sure. I I mean, did he, did he act upon them on, on the, on the, I'm sure he did. He did. I'm sure he did. He was very, very, very smart and funny. He was had an amazing sense of humor. Sure, sure. But he was extremely intelligent. Of course, of course. When when he signed with Death Row and he got out of prison, uh, did you have any contact between get him getting out of prison and uh, towards the mid 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 nineteen ninety six? When he when he first got out, no. When he first got out, he flew right to L.A. And so many people were at him and he was so busy recording and delivering music Uh that I didn't really interact with him. I didn't interact with him until maybe about six months before he passed. No, actually maybe four months before he passed. I was putting, when he, when he died, when he was murdered, um, I was shopping a deal for him. He had delivered the three albums that he was supposed to deliver to death row and um, he was starting a label called Euthanasia. Euthanasia, yeah. And I had put the business plan together and was literally actively shopping it to get distribution wow. when he when he was shot. Wow, wow. Yeah, it never crossed my mind that he would die, and because he had like survived everything. Sure. You know, he had survived so much that when he got shot in Las Vegas. I FedExed a, a get well card to him, like a funny get well card to him, just knowing he was going to be fine. I just knew that he would wake up and see the card and chuckle and be like, it's okay, Wendy, I'm fine. You know, back to business as usual. Yeah. So when he died, I was devastated. It never crossed my mind he could die. Of course, of course. 
I mean, is, I, I, can't, I can't imagine what, what you went through because it, obviously you, you've got that personal relationship with him. I mean, what, what can you tell us any more about the plans for the euthanasia deal? Well, the great thing about what he was trying to do is it was more than a record label. He was trying to build um, um, centers for kids inside of the hood in every urban area. He wanted to have childcare inside of the the label so that um, when the when the men or women came to work, there was a place to leave their children like in a daycare mm -hmm. so that the kids would be taken care of. Like it was so foresightful. Um, we had scholarships for employees so that if they wanted to go to college and learn, they could. Wow. There was just it, it was really like his values really aligned with my own. And it really was a labor of love. And unfortunately, when he passed away, I wasn't in a financial position to just run with the ball. Yeah. So the whole concept died with him. And that was the worst part because after he passed away and I brought the idea to other people thinking, you know, maybe we, maybe the idea doesn't have to die with him. Most people don't care about helping society. They just want to help themselves. Sure. So I really couldn't find uh, an investor or another artist that saw his vision and wanted to like complete it. I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, going back just before that, how, how did Tupac, did Tupac come to you with the, with the plan for euthanasia? Because well, he died before he died before it could be enacted. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. He died. I was maybe a month into shopping the deal for him when he, when he was killed. Sure. Sure. Because there's been a lot of rumors about him leaving death row, not leaving death row. He was leaving death row. He was, he was. Yes. And they knew it. He even stopped wearing the chain. He stopped wearing the death row chain and he was wearing an angel pendant with rubies. Um, he had delivered three albums already. It was a three album deal that he signed with death row and he had already delivered all three albums sure. to them. So he was leaving death row. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, did you notice a shift in the culture when Tupac eventually succumbed to, to his wounds in, in Las Vegas? Um, I saw a shift in the culture in that people realized that beefs could now turn deadly. Yeah. And back then, you know, when two artists were beefing, it was usually on wax. Like they were, you know, it was one would make a song, the other would make a response and it would just go back and forth. Yeah. And we all kind of enjoyed it because of the energy and the, you know, some of, sometimes it was funny, like ether, you know, when Jay-Z and Nas were going at it, it was funny, you know, they would zing each other and it was, it was amusing. But once Tupac died and then six months later when Biggie died, we realized, oh shit, like this is real. This is some real street shit. Sure. This isn't just music industry barbs, you know, back and forth. Like this is a real life and death situation. Sure. So yes, I definitely saw a shift in the culture. Wow. Wow. I mean, I think Tupac was the actual first, first hip hop artist to be, to be killed in such, in such a pro pro prolific way. Um, if not the first, certainly the most famous. Sure, sure. And we've had, we've had multiple. It's since. kind of commonplace now, which yeah. is really scary. That's you awesome. know, I, I, I was looking on 
Instagram and as rappers are dying, like people are counting, like there's a count of how many rappers have died in the past year or the past year and a half or since COVID. And it's, it's crazy. The number of people Wow, it's become like commonplace for sure. For sure. Something so unacceptable. Yeah, exactly. Something does need to change. It it really does. Yeah. It really does. It's very sad. Yeah, life is too cheap now. And it's just, it's not like these are human beings. Exactly. Exactly. You know, um, here in Atlanta, little Keed just passed away and he was 24 when he died. And I was saying to some of my team members that imagine if I had died when I was 24, I started rap coalition at 30. Wow. So if I had died at 24, there would have been no Wendy Day. There would have been no rap coalition. Exactly. Like I've been able to accomplish so much from, you know, starting at 30 years old. I, I can only imagine what little Keed may have brought to the world. He may have changed the world. Of course. So it is like, sad. so un- unacceptable. It really is. It yeah. Is. It's just unacceptable. Of course. I mean, you give Tupac a lot of help and support back in them days. And uh, it, yes. it, you know, up until up until his death and, and beyond and beyond, you tried to, you know, further further the euthanasia deal. Absolutely. In, in turn, did Tupac give you give you any advice that has helped he did. You life and career? He did. Um, he gave me he gave me some advice I did not take. <laughs> and then he gave me some advice that I did. Right. And the advice that I did take was he explained to me that as a white woman in a black predominantly male art form that I was gonna need to have allies. And he talked me into starting a board of advisors and he was my first board member. Um, Chuck D was my second. So he, he talked me into surrounding myself with other people that could make a difference in what I was accomplishing. And then um, the advice that I did not take, he he thought like he loved the idea of rap coalition, but he thought that I should charge people and keep it a not for profit, but make them pay something for the services, at least have a sliding scale. And I was never willing to do that. Wow. Wow. That's that's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, and and you're still here doing it now. Yes. 25 26 years later and 30 30 years exactly yeah i celebrated my 30th anniversary last month wow that's awesome that's awesome you know all props to you wendy all props thank to you. you i mean being, you. being in the thick of it in the nine in the late 90s i mean what impact did the internet have because the internet come around about what late 90s early 2000s? it was everything yeah it was everything it really started um i remember having an email address when I was working with Twista. So it started in the mid nineties, but once the, um, once Napster and LimeWire and Kaza came into play, it changed the music industry completely because music became free. So what it did was it cheapened music Mm -hmm. Um, in rap. It didn't stop us because we were giving away CDs for free anyway. So it wasn't that much of a change it was more a shift to technology and I've always been pretty much a geek. So for me, shifting to technology was easy. It wasn't for a lot of my peers. It changed a lot. Many, many people that I came up with left the music industry and went 
you know, into film and TV or just got different jobs, you know, regardless. Um, But I stayed and I love the changes. Like today I'm so much more effective than I was in the nineties because it's so much easier. I'm sure artists today don't feel that way, but you know, we had to, in order to go to a club, we had to move vinyl in crates and it was physically heavy when we were selling music, it was out of the back of the trunk of a car and it was CDs and CDs are really heavy. So it was manual labor. You know, we had to physically go from city to city to sell CDs in a car. Mm -hmm. Today I can just upload something at home on my laptop and it'll, it'll go worldwide when I press a button. So it's, it's so different. The downside is, that it's completely oversaturated today back in the day, because there was a, a, a higher barrier to entry mm-hmm. and it was more expensive to create the music. There was less music today. Oh, wow. We have 60,000 uploads to Spotify every day. Wow. So you've got to really spend money to stand out. Like as an artist, you've got to really market and promote there. There is no more word of mouth. It's very difficult to build a career just from having talent. And that is a lot different and that is a lot harder. But for me, it's kind of the same because every artist that I worked with or that I helped build in the nineties, I helped build them to get leverage so that we could go and do a major deal for them. Today we're, we're, it's the same process but we're staying independent mm-hmm. as we build the leverage instead of shopping a deal for them. I'm with you. I'm with, I'm with you. I mean, following on from that, you, you know, you, you're such a champion for, for, for the, for the artists themselves uh, and getting, basically getting the deals that they deserve. Yes. What, what, in your opinion, what is, what is included in, in a really good deal for an artist? Um, ownership and a, a lion's share of the split. So for example, a really bad deal would be a label signing an artist with no advance, mm-hmm. a, um, a 12-point deal, meaning they're going to get 12% of the income after they pay back everything that was spent out of their 12%. Yeah. And the goal of a label is to keep them signed for as long as possible. So 10 years or 15 years, that's a really, that's a really bad, bad, bad deal. So a good deal is whatever leverage you can bring to the table to get the time reduced, to get the split increased and to get as much ownership of the masters and the publishing as possible. Sure. sure. And you need leverage to do that. And by leverage, I mean, you've got to show the label that there's a market for you. There's a fan base out there. There's actually people that will support you. And the more you can reduce the risk of the label, Mm -hmm. the better your deal is going to be. For sure. For sure. I mean, do, do you think that artists come into the, onto the game, especially today with the internet, like you say, it's, uh, it's, it's oversaturated. Do you think that artists understand the business side of it? Or do no. They, no, no. I think, first of all, I'm, I'm saddened by the fact that a lot don't care. Right. They just want to get their music out there. They just want to be famous. They don't really study how this works so they don't really have a clue they'll just throw their music into the marketplace hoping that somebody comes along and signs them and it doesn't work that way i mean it 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 works that way but they're getting jerked you know it's it's a scam (laughs) so if 
if it works the way they think that it works, it's not really in their best interest. Sure. But a lot of artists will spend some time or at least have somebody on their team that has spent some time learning the industry mm-hmm. and they'll be able to travel relatively safely, you know, in these shark infested waters. Oh yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, what does the interest industry need more of from, from the viewpoint of the artist? Um, investors, the, the industry needs more people with money that are willing to invest, mm-hmm. but for a fair rate of return. There's a lot of investors, but they want to make, you know, 87% of the income and have ownership. Yeah. And there's no other investment out here in the world that's that onerous. You know, if, if an investor comes along and they're willing to take a risk along with the artist, they can make a great rate of return. You can make a lot of money quickly in the music industry, but you've got to do a deal with the right artist. You've got to do the right marketing and promotion at the right time. You've got to make the right moves. You've got to have people on your team that know how to do this because you can't just, you can't look as an outsider and and think, you know, what's going on. You don't, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of smoke and mirrors and it's not, it's not what it looks like. Sure, sure. Besides, besides the points there that you've that, that you've made, what advice would you give to up and coming artists who maybe watch this? What 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 the take on points? What would you what would you advise? I would advise learn as much as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Make sure you've got a budget so that you can market and promote. And the way to figure out what that budget should be is to make a list of everything you want to do to market and promote. Price it out. See what the cost is. And then if you're able to fund it yourself, do so. If you don't have enough money to fund it properly, go find an investor. But you can't win in the music business with no money. There's no way to start any business without any, any money at all, without any investment. It's just not, it's not logically possible. For sure, for sure. It's so it's so great picking you picking your brains. So you know you've got so much experience and you've helped so many artists. So hopefully some up and coming artists will see that. We'll see what you've just said and take that on board and go. I hope it. so. That's my goal. Of course, of course. I mean, like I said at uh, the, the, the start, I spoke with uh, Ross Kaz not too long ago, and he called you the the the, the queen of hip hop, basically uh, the, the the angel of hip hop. Sorry. Um. What what what's your what's your vision or an outlook for the the, the culture going forward? Um, my vision really hasn't changed. It's really to help artists keep ownership and control of their own art form. And, you know, I I have a company called Power Moves, which is for profit. Mm -hmm. And we show artists hands on how to make money with their music. So I'm building millionaires in my company every day. And that's my goal. That's always been my goal. That will always be my goal. I want to see artists actually profit from their own art form. Sure, sure. There needs to be more Wendy Wendy days. There really does because there needs to be way more Wendy days. Sure. Yes. Sure. I mean, I don't know anyone. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know any anybody who's been in the game as long as you and has helped as many artists as you and who's still doing it and who has the vision that you that, that you do. 
Sadly, I don't, I don't know of any either. And I wish that weren't the case. You know, most people get into the music industry because they want to make money. And I got into the music industry because I wanted to help people. So I marched to a little bit of a different drummer already, Mm -hmm. not to say that I don't want to be able to pay my rent or my mortgage or my car payments. But for me, being a millionaire or a multimillionaire has never been my goal. Like I'm not trying to be the person who has the most toys when they die. That that's never been, that's never been my driving force. You know, helping people has always been my driving force. And sadly it took me until I was in my fifties to start really making money and saving money for retirement. Because at some point, you know, I, I don't want to, die broken penniless, you know, homeless on the streets. So I've, I've got to take that into consideration. I'm in my late fifties, but on the flip side, like I'm, I'm good. Like I'm not trying to, you know, I'm, I I don't have a Rolex. I don't have diamonds in my ears. I don't really care about that stuff. Sure. Sure. You're very, very rare breed. Very, very rare breed. And and hip hop, especially in, especially in hip hop. For sure, for sure. I mean, I'm I'm based in hip hop. Sure, I'm based here in the UK, and yeah, I know about Wendy Day. I knew about Wendy that's awesome. You know, 10, 10, 10, 15 years ago, you know. So you 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 know Thank you, you are you you are appreciated from from a hip hop. Thank you. You really are. You really are. I mean, what's what's next for Wendy Day? Um, two things. I'm building an educational website. Um, hopefully, it'll be up by this summer. Okay. I want to educate as many artists as possible. And then um, the second thing I'm working on is an incubator for, for, for rappers called artist centric. And it's, to be honest with you, it's an accelerator, but our world doesn't really know the difference between incubator and accelerator. So I call it an incubator, but I want to bring artists inside of the company and show them hands-on how to market and promote and then when they're ready to go on and, and have their own companies, I want to then push them out of the nest. And when I push them out of the nest, they will have 100% ownership of their masters and their publishing. Wow. So it's, it's, it's similar to what I'm doing now, only I'm removing the investor. I'm becoming the investor oh, so that yeah. artists don't have to find their own investor. They'll have to have some skin in the game. I'm going to need them to have some investment but they won't it, it won't be the same as having to go do like a 50-50 deal with an investor. Yeah. You know, we'll split profits while they're still in the incubator, but once they leave, they're going to leave with everything. Wow. Wow. Honestly, it's unheard of. It really is. It really Yeah. Is. I'm, I'm having I'm, difficulty finding investors because of that. Like the the people that want to invest in my vision, they get it, but they want some ownership on the back end. Even if it's like five or 10%, they want to retain ownership. And I'm really trying not to do that. I really want to keep the artist having 100% ownership when they leave. Of course, of course. I, really I might have to set it up as a not-for-profit. Of course. I really do wish you, wish you the best for that. Because Thank you. Going forward with uh, hip-hop, hip-hop really does need something like you know, the, the, the plans it are set out, you know, it really does. You're a champion for the artists, you're a champion for hip hop at, at the end of the day. And, and other investors need to need to take a look what you're doing and forget about the money. Forget it's, it's the culture that we, you know, 
Yes. The profits, basically. That's, that's yes. the way. And I'm- you can still make money. It's not, you don't have to own something to make money. Sure. Sure. I think that's the take home point, I think, to be fair. It yeah. Really is. It really is. I mean, before we let you get going, Wendy, uh, can you name your top five artists of today's era? Wow, that's hard to do. Um, I really like Rod Wave a lot. I like Roddy Rich. Um, there's a group out of the Bay Area called Ugly Face that I'm loving. They're they're sort of like a tribe called Quest vibe. Oh, nice. um, they're quite amazing. Um, wow, two more. I like Post Malone a lot. I like how melodic his music is. Okay. And... Um, I really like future a lot. I, I don't love this new album, okay. but I, I really, I really enjoy listening to future. Sure. Maybe because I live in Atlanta. I don't know. Of course. Of course. <laughs> That's a solid top five to be fair. I mean, the future, future. I definitely agree. I agree. On. Definitely. For sure. Who are your top five of this era? Oh, my top five. I've got, a, I've got a few UK artists. So uh, I've got a, a guy called K Coke. Uh, I know called- who that is. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. He was signed to uh, Jay-Z, I think, at one point. Going back. Oh, to- I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. I, but I think he, he was he had some legal trouble over here in the UK, and I think he got dropped. A um, oh. guy called My Righteous. Um, he's a very political uh, rapper. Um, Loki, I love political rappers. Of course. Of course. I'm sorry. Who was the third one? I missed it. Uh, Loki. Okay. Um, but n- number one is Tupac. Really? Wow. Well, you said t- uh, this, this era. Sorry. Um, no, no, you could say Tupac. Like, okay. I love that. I love I love that that he was never my number one. He right. was never in my top five. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I was never a fan. I was a fan of him, sure. not necessarily the music. Sure. I'm with you. I'm with you. Wow. Yeah. My favorite rapper's actually always been Razkaz. He's my really? favorite. Really? Oh, he was so dope. Because he's oh. so deep. Yes, yes. I mean, I... I I grew up listening to Karis One and um, that, that kind of thing, like, like you say, like political, the political rap. And it's got a message. And I think Razkaz's music has got a message. It and, does. And we spoke, we spoke about that. And he it, it said it was it's sad in the reality of the, 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 the times we live in. He can post a, like a political post on, let's say, Instagram, and it, it doesn't get that much attention, but he can, he sees a lot of posts, ignorant posts. And you get so much attention. It gets all the attention. For sure, for sure. Uh, but it's just I, the times we live in. Of course, of course. I said my number one uh, of today's rappers, I say is the game. I like the game. Really? Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to this new album. I'm not too sure. He's hanging around with Kanye a bit too much. I'm not I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure what to expect. But yeah, yeah. I'd say number one of today's era, I'd say, I'd say it's the game. That's awesome. For sure, for sure. Wendy, it's been awesome to talk to you and to pick your brains about the music. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time today. This was a pleasure. For sure. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Hip Hop 24. Thank you. So happy to be here.